Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue that takes a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at the policy and the framing of various instances of political journalism. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Monday, May 2nd, 2022, and while our family is still bonding with our new baby boy, I'm excited to bring you part five of my Solving Guns project. This is a multi-part series that we're sharing first with our Polylog listeners, a project that I've spent years on. The goal is to examine every form of gun violence, to go deep on the reasons why people own guns in the first place, and to find solutions without passing gun control laws. Not because these types of laws are a bad idea or a good idea, but because laws are not solving this issue right now. Whether you love guns or hate them, my hope is that the solutions here can unite those on the left and the right behind one goal, to save lives, something we can all agree on. You can find this project with written versions and some videos online at solvingguns.org. You can also find access to the 2,000 plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project at that site. So let's begin. This is part five. This is the second part of our discussion on guns used in crime. Last week, we talked about how guns are used to resolve disputes. This week, we're focusing on how guns are used to gain respect and social standing. The question is, can we reduce this kind of gun violence without the need for gun control legislation? So, let's begin. Young people have another need that guns fulfill, a need to gain respect and social standing. Particularly among their friends, young men themselves. Guns can do this. Even just carrying a gun can raise their profile. For example, take a listen to this quote. When I bought my 357, no, I didn't see if it was good and working. Look, man, I can get one of those guns that fires, but shit, sometimes you just need to show it, you know, and you get the respect you're looking for. And this thing was big, man. I didn't give a shit if it fired or not. I could have killed somebody with it just hitting them over the head. That was a young man interviewed in Chicago in 2005. Sometimes you just need to show it, and you also get the respect you're looking for. But it's worth asking why. Why do guns earn that respect among young men? Well, four reasons. A lack of other means to achieve social standing. It's not easy to find a job as a young adult male. In fact, unemployment is often three to five times as high as it is for adults. And there are long periods between the end of schooling and the start of a career. So if school is no longer there, sports and extracurriculars no longer there, if college and career are not yet there, and jobs are poor and money tight, how do you achieve social standing? As the researchers Kimmel and company noted in 2003, young men are socially conditioned to seek power, but they're often the least likely to have it. And they're marginalized in just about every way a person can be marginalized. Violence at the grip of a gun increases that power. It's the one potent tool within their grasp. Young men also turn to violence when they lack other means to prove their masculinity. As a sociologist at the University of Witwatersand in Johannesburg noted, the gun is a convenient peg on which to hang traditional notions of masculine power. 
Speaking of masculine power, slang terms for shooting among New York minority youths include blasting, busting, bucking, spraying, wetting, and letting off. As the Rap Online Dictionary points out, slang for gun and penis is almost always interchangeable. According to a study of armed violence that looked across nine countries, young men agreed that carrying a gun was an effective way to achieve status and gain respect. Another study that zeroed in just on New York City neighborhoods found that, quote, possessing a gun is perceived as an important means of impressing peers along with having a car or a girlfriend. Speaking of girlfriends, guns in these settings can be important status symbols, not just among young men, but women too. In Rio de Janeiro, there's a name for women attracted to men with nice cars, Maria Gasolina. There's also a name for women attracted to men with guns, Maria AK-47s. So for those who thought that getting a girlfriend could prove your masculinity better than getting a gun, consider the fact that getting a gun can help you get the girlfriend. In Brazil, an anti-violence program recognized this and targeted not young men, but the women attracted to them. The Choose Gun Free, It's Your Weapon or Me campaign aired national TV spots featuring a famous comedian insinuating that guns are there to compensate for a lack of other masculine traits. The program also helped build opportunities for women beyond their association with gun traffickers. But even if there are other ways to achieve status and social standing, it's not always easy to see it, especially if there aren't role models modeling these opportunities. A pair of researchers looking across more than 45 countries and 12 tribal societies found that one of the most reliable factors in explaining violence was the ratio of young men to men over 30. The more young men versus older men, the higher the rate of violence. What does it say about violence in this country? The rate of single-parent households among the African-American community is 67%. Compare that to 42% in the Latino community and the white community at 25%. Among black and African-American families, the single parent is overwhelmingly the mother, with the father absent. This is not to say that fathers are at fault, or only at fault, because when you ask where these older men are, the answer, time and time again, is jail. There are more black men in jail today than there were in slavery during the Civil War. And so many are in jail for nonviolent crimes. The fewer older men in, on the street, the more violence you're likely to see on those streets. Jails meant to keep people safe have very likely had the opposite effect, removing men from their communities, creating a vacuum to be filled by violent youth. Violence begets more violence. There's an arms race effect of escalation as more young men seek protection in violent weapons. Young men, remember, aren't just the number one perpetrators of homicide, they're also the most likely to be victimized. And they know it. So carrying a gun can feel like the only way to protect oneself. Unfortunately, the fact is that this makes them more likely to be a victim or a perpetrator of armed violence. Would-be fistfights in a less well-armed community become firefights, as noted by Cook and Company in 2005. Guns seem the solution to almost every problem when you add all this up. There's a perverse circle here. Young men crave social standing. They can't get it through traditional means like career achievement and wealth, so they seek it in guns. Then they use those guns to try to achieve wealth and maybe even a career in crime. 
Young men are more likely to use guns in crime than any other age group. When researchers surveyed U.S. state and federal prisons, they checked to see if inmates used guns during their last offense. On average, 18% were armed when they made those offenses. But when they looked just at inmates under the age of 25, that number spiked to 25%. That means if you're walking down the street and stumble on four young men committing a crime, like a robbery, a mugging, a hijacking of a car, there's about a 70% chance that at least one of them is armed. Guns are an opportunity to achieve social standing, and crime is an opportunity to achieve wealth. They're both high-risk activities, though, because carrying a gun is a high-risk proposition. That gives us an opportunity for the shape of a solution, a lower-risk solution with the same possibility of high rewards. Any alternative will have to outcompete guns by meeting these needs. The solution must fill the gap of time between 18 and 25, that period of years when young men don't have school responsibilities and work is unavailable, career unattainable. The solution must provide young men with more opportunities for advancement and more variety of experience than they would get from either the drug trade or criminal activity. The solution must carry with it important responsibilities and the constructive means of these young men to fulfill them without delay. No jumping through useless hoops like waiting to take an entrance exam, to submit paperwork, or complete foundational courses in Greek philosophy, right? Like you'd have to do in college. The solution must be viewed as relevant to society and, yes, manly. And it must showcase many examples of positive male role models and adult allies, people who are truly and immediately in their lives, people that they can measure themselves against and try to impress, people who are not just their peers. And for this idea to succeed, an option must be more appealing, more accessible, more respected, and maybe even more lucrative than guns, illegal markets, and crime. First, one that already exists, though it's always been somewhat controversial, the military. The military is in the business of taking young men and women from everyday life and providing a structured path to career success. The military delivers pretty much every one of those requirements that we identified. It fills the gap between 18 and 25. It offers a thousand career paths to advance and prove themselves from helicopter mechanic to fighter pilot, from logistics expert to intelligence officer. The military carries important responsibilities. Human lives are literally at stake and a clear path to fulfill them. Military training can be brutal, but it can also build skills in useful subjects and awaken new interests in areas like navigation, leadership, and ethics. It is clearly paramount to society manly, and a path that earns respect from every citizen. And positive male role models and adult allies are abundant. The whole curriculum and chain of command is built on it. Oh, and the military can be rewarding financially, with impressive pay and benefits that become even more impressive when you consider that the military often provides housing and even food, cutting out a huge living expense. Yes, there are limitations and drawbacks in each of these areas, but the military fits everything we were looking for like a glove. This isn't without controversy. The idea that the rich send the less fortunate into battle for them doesn't sit well with anyone. This is especially true in wartime, when the military can be a very dangerous option. 
At the height of Vietnam, for example, it was five times more dangerous to be in the military than it is to be a young black man between 18 and 24 today. If you remember, the rate of homicide victimization for these men today is one in every 1,000 killed. The rate of deaths in the military in 68 was one in every 210 people. So how safe is the military today? Well, believe it or not, it's almost even with the experience of young black men. About one in every 1,300 service members died in 2010, which is typical of where current military casualty numbers fall. That's not counting sickness because that wouldn't be fair. And it's important to note that just a few percent of those were in hostile action. The rest were mostly by accident or suicide in that order. Yes, it's a dangerous place to be, so it's not a perfect option when it comes to mortality. But oddly enough, the military today is a less dangerous and less violent place than America for young black men. And it could very well put them on a track to succeed later in life. One major problem with this idea, though, is the numbers themselves. If you look at the income distribution of military recruits, you'll notice that those in lower-income neighborhoods aren't as represented in the military. And the reason for that is spelled out in a report to the Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. The report said, quote, Lower-income neighborhoods tend to have fewer people qualified to serve. In fiscal year 14, for example, virtually all NPS accessions were high school diploma graduates. And high school dropout rates are higher in low-income neighborhoods." End quote. To make this a better option, then, we'll need to work on increasing high school completion rates in these areas. But what if the young people we're talking about want to live and work closer to home? Rather than choosing the military, are there options that keep them in their own communities? Well, what about policing? What if you put young men susceptible to gun violence in charge of reducing violence? It may seem crazy to issue a gun to someone who you're trying to wrest a gun from, but think about it. Policing fills the gap between 18 and 24. It offers a wide range of career opportunities from investigations to enforcement. It provides important responsibilities like keeping the community safe and a constructive means to fulfill them based on real training and procedure. And if we could build a program to make policing an accessible career to these young people, a program that helped ease the transition into this work, it could be attainable without jumping through useless hoops. Policing is certainly relevant to society and provides a venue for young men to express their masculinity with guns and squad cars and a sense of being a part of something, a, a community and an identity. And just as in the military, there are constructive, positive male role models in the profession who can help define what it means to be successful. But don't take my word for it. When Dallas police faced massive protests and five of its officers were assassinated, police chief David Brown had this advice for young men. He said, quote, we're hiring. Get off that protest line and put an application in and we'll put you in your neighborhood and we'll help you resolve some of the problems you're protesting about. Now, a project like this, a large-scale project to make policing truly accessible to the at-risk population of young black men, would face a ton of challenges. The biggest one from the young men themselves. Wouldn't it seem to them and to their friends that taking a job in policing is changing sides, betraying their community by choosing cops over their friends and family? 
Wouldn't they be accused of being brainwashed or bought? Maybe. But if the program was presented properly, if it was couched in terms of community control, it might just work. Instead of being perceived as giving up to the police, the program could be about taking command, taking back the safety and security needs of their community from outsiders to insiders. One way to do this? Make sure that the mentors and adult allies are, wherever possible, older members of these communities. But even if you can convince young black men that this is a worthwhile idea, you have to make it worth their time. And time's an issue here. It's a giant leap to go from being in control of your own time and your own life to being controlled by a time card. A 40-hour work week is way more hours than school or part-time work, and the idea that a young person of any education or background can so easily slip into a 40-hour grind is crazy. It's demanding and exhausting and often boring all at the same time. How does any employer make the job attractive enough to compete with the alternative? Would a job in the police and the training to make it real seem like too much work all the time? Too many rules and not enough fun and freedom? The program would have to build in time to rest and relax responsibly, both long-term in the form of trips and vacations, and short-term, once a day or once every few hours. Maybe you build in activities like a university might. Sports, concerts, bands, cooking, and the culinary arts. Helping the young men to build on and expand their talents and interests in other areas. At the heart of all these possibilities is one important question. Are there enough jobs to absorb so many young men? Is there enough demand for police? Enough demand even for the military? This is a meaningful question, because there are over 5 million people between 18 and 24 who live in poverty and could benefit from employment. The U.S. military only has an active force of about 2 million, so if we're taking a wide approach to this problem, the answer is no. There aren't enough spaces in the military. Now, we could put limits on such a program, limiting entrance to those living within 15 or 30 miles of violence hotspots, and we could also limit the program duration. It could be made clear that a position in the police force in your own neighborhood only lasts a few years, at which point you can transition to a new location or to a new job that appreciates the skills you built in the police. Still, there would be a cost. How much? Well, first, let's figure out how much we have to work with. How much does gun violence, the kind we're talking about here, of homicide and assault committed to 18 to 30 year olds, how much does it cost? Cost in low wages and medical bills, cost in investigations and court fees. The answer? $87 billion every single year. If we could put that money instead towards prevention, Imagine what an impact it could make. What kind of impact? How about 4,000 lives saved every single year? That's the impact we might expect if we took one successful gun violence reduction program and scaled it across the nation. This is a program that already exists. The program's called the ONS, or Office of Neighborhood Safety. And it's successfully reduced gun violence in one of the most violent cities in America since 2007. The year the program was established in Richmond, California, the city's rate of homicides was nearly 10 times that of similarly sized cities in the state. 
in the seven years of its operations studied by an evaluation report, it's helped to reduce the gun death rate by 76%. How? The program's greatest innovation is based on one surprising fact. In a city of over 100,000 residents, just 30 people, a classroom's worth, were responsible for 70% of firearm violence in the entire metropolis. What if you could get those 30 people? What if, with intensive intervention, you could turn them away from gun violence? That's what the ONS has tried to do, and it's seen success. Just three years after it started, the city recorded its lowest homicide rate in its 100-year history. How does it work? And what does it cost? With a budget of just $3 million a year, the ONS divides its work into two main areas, community intervention and individual intervention. For the community, the ONS has a street outreach strategy led by four full-time neighborhood change agents. These are people who've grown up in the same neighborhoods that are hotspots for gun violence. They know the community, and they work each day to mediate conflict between youth so it doesn't spiral into violence. They also help refer youth to available community services, such as employment opportunities. Though there are only four of them, these individuals each year help up to a thousand young people find jobs, learn about uh, leading nonviolent lives, and just relax. Each summer, they host 12 block parties with the aim of providing youth a safe environment. That's a lot of parties for one summer. The individual intervention, however, is the part of the ONS that makes headlines. It's called the Operation Peacemaker Fellowship, and it zeroes in on those individuals who are absolutely the most active firearm offenders in town. Right now, the ONS has 68 fellows. They're young men, 14 to 25 years old, 97% African American, and they tend to come from communities that have suffered from structural unemployment and poverty. Half are fathers, and about one in five have already been victims of gun violence. Why do they sign up? Often it's because they see others benefiting from the program, oftentimes friends, participating and making positive changes in their lives. ONS staff recruit these young men into the fellowship. It's an intensive 18-month to three-year mentoring program. There are seven key components. First, each individual must create a life map and develop real goals. Goals in areas like housing, education, employment, transportation, uh, personal and family relationships, their finances, their spiritual beliefs, recreational interests and social standing, and health, both physical and mental. Fellows are challenged to commit to short-term and long-term goals in each of these areas and real steps towards accomplishing them. The map is updated every six months and no fellow graduates without accomplishing them. Second, mentors help the fellows access social services. It's a sad fact that many young people who are vulnerable to gun violence are underserved by social services. They either aren't targets of outreach, or they have difficulty procuring them. ONS helps connect fellows to health care and mental health services, services they're owed, services that are offered by the government. About one in three receive transportation and parenting services, and one in six gets substance abuse counseling and housing help. Third, the program connects youth with older members of their community, men from 20 to 55 plus. 
This intergenerational mentoring, or elders circle as it's called, helps young fellows see how their violence impacts the community at large. And it gives them advice on family relationships and fosters a dialogue on building a successful life. These meetings happen twice a month during two-hour sessions. In addition to serving as advisors, elders also use their networks to help individuals find jobs. If the elder circle helps fellows see their impact on the community, the fourth pillar, excursions, helps them see beyond the community. Excursions get fellows out of town for a trip sometimes to a nearby city, but more often to a new country. Fellows have gone on field excursions as far as Mexico City, South Africa, and Dubai. More than 35 excursions have taken place, and it's one of the most exciting parts of the program. It's what gets people excited to sign up. To qualify, fellows have to have completed life maps, they have to have agreed to stop shooting, and for out-of-state travel, they have to agree to travel with fellows from rival neighborhoods. This isn't always easy, as one fellow explains. He said, he had shot at me and my people. I didn't think I could do it at first, but now we had to go out together, and it can be cool. The program helped me do it. Another said, we're all basically alike. When you take people out of state, you forget about everything and just want to have fun. These aren't just vacations. Fellows take tours of colleges, attend conferences, and even present at these conferences. They meet with government officials and complete community service projects. It's a transformative experience. As one fellow said, trips are important because it's the only time I've been out of harm's way. Now to do these trips, the ONS will help people with everything from passports to learning to tie a tie. As one fellow said, they spent a lot of money on me. I ran up bills on ONS. It was important to them, and they got what they paid for, success. To further incentivize fellows, the program offers stipends. This is controversial, and a number of news articles have blown this part of the program way out of proportion to the other parts. You'll see headlines like, did this program solve gun violence by paying people not to shoot? The answer is more complicated than that. Stipends, as you see, are just one part of a far larger program. But still, it's an important part. Only about 60% of the fellows have been provided stipends. Those who didn't receive it either had no need for monetary support, couldn't meet their life map goals, or had other issues that made stipends a bad idea, like a substance abuse problem. Now, how much money are we talking about here? The stipends range from $300 a month to as high as $1,000 a month, but most are around $300 to $700 in range. The point is fourfold. Attract individuals who might be reluctant to join the program, serve as an alternative to money made through illegal activities, often with guns, reinforce positive behavior like staying on track with life goals, and demonstrate that the ONS believes in and recognizes their worth. The program next pillar is paid internship opportunities. Usually, the internship program kicks in after basic needs like housing have already been addressed. The internships are about 20 hours a week for a period of about six months at a local city department, agency, or community organization. The cost of the program is subsidized by the ONS, encouraging employers to take a chance on these fellows. To make sure fellows are finding success, the ONS mentors regularly stop by to visit the interns to promote job retention. Since the program began, every fellow who took advantage of the internship program gained long-term employment out of it. 
The final pillar is the ONS staff members themselves, the frequency and the quality of their mentorship. Mentors check in with fellows twice every single day. At the beginning of the day, they talk about a fellow's plans and encourage them. At the end of the day, they talk about what happened and what's to come. This is done by phone, text message, or in person. It builds a real relationship, a valuable one, one that helps them with classes, college prep, resumes, job placement, and, if necessary, picking them up from jail. There's no way to fail or flunk out of the program. TONS never gives up on an individual for any reason. They just keep working towards graduation and success. A success that, as some individuals noted, can become the new normal. As one said, what I love about the fellowship is that it can help anybody help themselves. It's there for individuals who want to open their eyes. It's a family that cares about each other and the community. The ONS is a community program, not a policing program. While the office is in the mayor's office and it does use information on crime statistics to find problem areas to work in, the ONS provides zero information to the cops, ever. To do so would be to undermine the trust that the program has built over the past decade, a trust that is now reaping benefits even beyond the gun violence it's prevented. As one fellow said, quote, fellows need to be in the hood talking to kids in the neighborhood now. We were influenced by the original gangsters back then. We can be influenced by fellows now. I have really positive things to tell the kids. All of this and a 70% reduction in gun homicides for just $3 million a year, serving a 100,000 person population, one town. What if we scaled it across the entire nation? How much would it cost? The answer is insanely cheap, just under $400 million. Remember, the cost of gun violence perpetrated by those 18 to 30 year olds every year is 87 billion. So for a fraction, less than one half of 1% of the cost of that violence, we could nationalize a program with the potential to reduce it by 70% and save 4,000 lives, literally stopping a 9-11 every year. In other words, for the cost of just one year's gun violence among 18 to 30 year olds, we could expand the ONS program nationally to all 50 states and fund it for 222 years. Not a bad deal. And if combined with outreach programs offering opportunities in policing, the military, or other career areas, just imagine the impact we could make. Stopping the shooting in the streets is possible. It's happening right now. It's just not happening everywhere yet. Let's make it happen. Let's not only save lives, but change them. As one ONS fellow said, quote, I have a career instead of a regular job. You can be part of something, rebuilding something. It feels amazing to build something. It's a great sense of accomplishment. So that's the end of the two-part discussion of guns used in crime. You can find the previous part last week. Next week, we'll begin our multi-part discussion of ways to stop mass shootings without the need for gun control legislation. That topic takes up half of this entire project. It's huge. So there's a lot to talk about, and I can't wait to share it, because there's so, so, so many eye-opening things that nobody ever talks about when it comes to that issue. In the meantime, you can learn more at solvingguns.org. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can email us at podcast at polylog.com. 
You can tweet at me at Beastidle, and you can tweet at Naomi at SotoNaomi underscore. You can tweet at the show at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you again next week. Bye.